Okay. Uh, welcome to an. Sorry, that sounded very kind of casual. I didn't mean it to sound. Okay. Yeah. If it feels like you're about to take our order, can I get you guys any starters? Actually, that sounds like quite a good idea. It does doesn't it? This kind of this time of the day as well. Bang bang chicken is my favourite starter. Bang bang chicken. Is that chicken with a little bit of a spicy th- sort of thing going on? Okay. Yes. Anything with garlic, I'll have bread, no. No. mushrooms, anything like that. Mushrooms is the devil's food. Oh, yes, I remember. Anyway, it's Books of the Year. That's what we are. And uh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for downloading us. Uh, Doing some quick maths. We have, since January this year, we've done 24 episodes. 24. Wow. Is that right? 24. So that would mean one a week, wouldn't it? Anyway, these include episodes by Linwood Barkley, Harlan Coben, Joanne Harris, Cecilia Ahern. And loads more. Yeah. And did you know, Matt, that all these episodes, in fact, all the episodes we've ever done are available to listen to from wherever you get your podcast? I would hope that they are. And uh, I would be having a word with whoever runs podcasts if that were not the case. Yes. So, yeah, that's right. very good news. So lots to, lots to find out. Here's an email from Julie. Simon and Matt, love the pod. I heard you talking recently about how many pages you give a book before giving up on it. I thought you might be interested in a general rule of thumb about how long to give a book as proposed by the legendary librarian Nancy Pearl. Her initial advice was to give a book 50 pages, but she later gave this addendum. When you're 51 years of age or older, subtract your age from 100, and the resulting number is the number of pages you should read before you can guiltlessly give up on a book. Okay. As the saying goes, says Julie, age has its privileges, and the ultimate privilege of age, of course, is that when you're 100, you are authorised to judge a book by its cover. Yes, You'd have to you read anything. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, by the time you get to 100, you don't really have to do anything at all anyway. Uh, tweet from Mike, uh, who recently read Drowning by TJ Newman. This has major movie adaptation running through it like Blackpool Rock, gripping, tense, unputdownable, which feels like Mike is trying to get onto the front cover if TJ Newman yes. already have some great testimonials. I, anyway. I think there is some... I seem to remember that it was before we spoke to them it was already signed up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's definitely definitely going to be made into a movie. Uh, this on Twitter, too, from Francis Crossland. I'm currently in Spain. I was out for a walk listening to the pod, and I laughed out loud when I heard Matt talk about the infamously cheap wine Don Simon. Uh, two euros a litre. Uh, I remember drinking it as a student during my time abroad in Spain. Still on sale in supermarkets today. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that Don Simon's still going strong. Two? Two years. I mean, when I was there, it was like, you know... Uh, well, it was pesetas, so it was like 100 pesetas for a litre, which is, you know, not a lot of money. It was like 50p to have two litres of, uh, of red wine. It was not I mean, good quality. How... No. Was it? Did they have red and white, or was it no. impossible to tell? <laughs> it, was, it was basically just red in a tetra pack, and you would, we would make a drink called um, Calimocho, which is, I'm sure I've told you about this, is basically you get a bucket and you fill it with ice, and you pour in your tetra pack of uh, of Don Simon red wine, and then you top it up with Coca Cola, and uh, red wine and Coca Cola, red wine and Coca Cola, and it is. I mean, you know, we were in our twenties, but it was. I remember being uh, finding that very nice indeed. So the downside of being in your twenties is that you have to leave at least eighty pages. You have to read eighty pages. Eighty pages, but the good side is Calimacho on tap, a bucket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, this from Jeremy, uh, also on the Twitter thing. I recently read... Are we on threads? Are we on threads? I'm on threads, you're on threads, but yeah. I don't know whether we... Books of the year, maybe. We should, we should be getting on the threads, we should, anyway, we? yeah. 
Um, Jeremy says, I recently read All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Crosby. Finished it in two days. A truly excellent book. I only picked it up because of your podcast. Remind me, who do I send the bill to for all these books you have made me buy? <laughs> yeah, quite right. Well, um, I'm glad it makes you want to buy books, but <laughs> I don't think you're going to be sending the bill to anybody. Um, but all the Sinners Bleed still one of the best books of yeah, the year, hence definitely. its inclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. It's a good sign as well. All the books that we get on, we either really like the book or we really like the author. So, yes. yeah, it's always a good sign. Sometimes both. And mm. it's the fish John West reject that make John West Salmon the best. <laughs> yes, so yeah. we are the John West <laughs> we Salmon. We are. The John it's, West Salmon of podcasts about books. We are. <laughs> we, we filter in the same way. Yes. That, John West filters throw out all of the other fish. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's also dolphin friendly. Yeah, we are dolphin we are. friendly. No dolphins harmed. In this uh, podcast. If you want to tweet us, books at books of the year on Instagram at pick any page. Threads not so much. Threads is coming. I'm sure, I'm our, sure. our top production staff will get onto that. Anyway, uh, it's time to talk to our top author for one of the. I think this is going to be one of the capital T. Yeah, books of the year. So here we go with another one of our books of the year. And it really is one of the books of the year. Um, when those anthologies are written come December, I think Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad by Daniel Finkelstein will be up there. Um, we're very pleased to have you in the studio. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Hello. Thank you for having me on. Um, it says, uh, well, actually, Matt's going to uh, mm. describe the cover and because the wording on the cover, I think, is... Uh, so I'm going to say that the, the, the background colour that makes up, uh, obviously, the vast, uh, vast majority of the front cover, I'm going to say that's teal, uh, but I'm... I'm, I'm uh, uh, I think it's a good, is, good, is that OK, teal? Stab at it, yeah. And then, and then we have what you would call fragments of, of photos of, um, uh, of Daniel's fa uh, family and black and white photos, but also uh, fragments of documents. And then um, Hitler starts... Stalin, Mum and Dad picked out in bold white, a family memoir of miraculous survival. Daniel Finkelstein and Robert Harris at the bottom calling it epic, moving and important. How long was this book in gestation? Daniel? Well, I've really always known I was going to write it, even before I knew I was going to be a journalist, even before I knew I could write, even probably before I was much of a reader, because it's such a compelling family story. My grandmother always used to talk about what had happened in the war and I'd listened to it and I knew then that it was a book, even though the idea of me writing one would have seemed preposterous. But the real question is, how long did it take me since I really decided, OK, I'm going to do this now? And that was about four years. So it took me about a year to read all about um, the background to the story. So things like, what is Belson? Which may sound like a, an easy question, but is in fact important to the story and probably not what many people know. What was the gulag um, in which my grandfather uh, was imprisoned? Um, what was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact? That sort of thing. And then about 18 months just going through family documents. And at first, I went rushing through it. And then I noticed something in my grandmother's, my grandfather's passport. It said he was five foot seven. An old English, you know, it was a British passport from late in his life. It wasn't a particularly important document itself. And I knew that my grandmother was six foot, so I realised there was something pretty interesting about the two of them, this massive disparity in height. And I suddenly thought every line of every document, however apparently banal the document is, will have something that belongs in this story, and I'm going to have to go through it with my fingertips. So that's what I then did for 18 months. Was this always the title? 
No. Uh, originally, the title... It's was, a great title. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, this was the subtitle. So <clears throat> my mother had a statement. When people used to ask her whether Stalin or Hitler were worse, she would always say, well, it's not a competition. And she always used to have this feeling about among Holocaust survivors, there's often a conversation, you know, was Auschwitz worse than Treblinka? Was Belson worse? You know, people have this conversation. And so she often used to say it's not a competition. And so the idea was to call it, it's not a competition. And then Hitler, Stalin, mum and dad. And I was speaking to my agent and he said, you know, I'm not sure I think the readers will understand that phrase. You understand it because your mum used to say it. And then I looked at it and I thought, oh, actually, why don't I just get rid of the title and use the subtitle. Everything that I've been looking for, and I've been looking it was really hard for months, is summarised in that. And I realised then afterwards, people would say to me, you're writing a book, what's it on? And I would say, well, I'll tell you the title. It's Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. They knew what I was writing about, so I knew I had the right title. Yeah. Introduce us to your family as we, as we start the book, just introduces to sort of the, the main players, if you like. Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> obviously because my mother and father were both 10 when they were arrested, this is a lot of story of my grandmothers and my grandfathers. So my, my mother was the daughter of a man called Alfred Wiener, who was one of the leaders of Germans Jews, German Jews in the 1920s. Uh, comes back from the war in the First World War, realises that anti-Semitism is rising. And right in 1919, he begins uh, to say, to warn about that and spends the rest of his life, really, both warning and then also recording everything that the Nazis do. Just to give you one tiny example, later in his life, when Mengele is thought to be in Argentina, the, 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 the man who's the angel of death in Auschwitz on the ramp, Everybody thought he might be in Argentina, but no one knew what he looked like. But Alfred, my grandfather, had a photo. So it's about Alfred and his wife Greta, PhD in economics in the 1920s, sophisticated woman, obviously because of that period, though she was definitely Alfred's partner and his helpmate, it wasn't equal. You know, my grandfather couldn't boil an egg, and Greta boiled the eggs. Um, but as a result of this, she is with the girls, my mother Miriam, my oldest, her older sister Ruth, her middle sister, Eva, right the way through their disaster. My grandfather, for various reasons, ends up in, in, in London during the war when they, are, when they end up in a Belson concentration camp. And so my, uh, this book is a little bit the story of these strong women, first Greta, and then on the other side, uh, my grandmother, Granny Lusha. And Lusha is married to Dolu, Dolu, somebody said to me the other day, Dolu was very well off. No, Dolu was rich. Dolu was a metalworks, had a metalworks business, and he was his nickname. I discovered while I was doing this business, this book, it was the Iron King. And when I discovered that, I gave me an idea of what they had. And um, Lusha was sort of a grand, the grand lady of Lvov, or one of the grand ladies of Lvov, which explained a lot why when I was a child, she would go to the express dairy in Hendon Central, dressed in you know beautiful cloth coat, white gloves. I got an amazing picture of it in the book. Um, uh, you know, a hat. Uh, she would, she would, and she was very much that. Uh, even though by that point she was living in a small house, um, just off the main road in Hendon Central. So, um, Greta and and uh, Lusha have one child, and that is my father. And of course, my father was brought up to be to inherit the business along with his cousins, and to um, you know to have involved himself like my grandfather and my great grandfather in the civic life of Lwów, which is uh, the big a big city in Poland at the time is now known as Lviv in Ukraine. And uh, Dad's going to do that. Of course, he ends up instead a professor of uh, measurement engineering in Hendon Central. 
Um, we've done a number of books, Daniel, about the Holocaust on this podcast, but this, I think, is the first one to talk about um, Stalin's crimes. And I'm uh, there. Are, there are two parts of the book that I want to um, talk about. One is, I mean, there's a, a sentence you mentioned very, very late on, where you say that your mum was often being asked about her experience of the Holocaust, but very few people, if any, asked about your father's experience in the in the Gulag. There's also a passage very near the start where you say, in all the discussions over which of these dictators was worse, it should never be forgotten that they were conspirators in many of the same murders and partners in many of the same crimes, that each must take some responsibility for the offences of the other, along with the offences they committed by themselves. And I wonder whether that is something that we often forget, that yeah. basically it, we're always, in other words, talking about Hitler and never Stalin. Yes, and what the first thing that happened in these papers that I was going through, I pulled out the first document in the first folder Folder. I'd had it since I was 16, actually. My, uh, you know, uh, somebody in my family had given me a folder of cuttings about my grandfather. And the first thing I pulled out, I suddenly realised, or holding in my hand, the, my grandfather's personal copy of the indictment of the Nuremberg conspirators. Quite a thing. Wow. And I looked through it, and the first thing I'm struck by, obviously, you know, what it meant about my grandfather Alfred. But then I started reading it, and I realised that everything that the Nuremberg defendants were guilty of, the Soviets did too. Uh, and the, the the crime, the conspiracy, the c uh, crimes against peace, the crimes against humanity, all of the crimes, uh, yet no one ever spoke of them. My parents thought of them very much as being part of the same thing. And of course, if you, one of the central political events in my parents' life was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Um, you know, you can talk about, I don't know, what Brexit or, uh, the, you know, the, the fall of the Heath government. In, um, but that's not, you know, those things were tiny, kind of minor little ripples in their life. The big event that meant they moved, had to move country and lost their fortune and, you know, many members of the family were killed was that Hitler and Stalin came to a, a non-aggression pact as a result of which Hitler was able to invade Poland uh, Stalin was also able to invade Poland and also Hitler was free to invade the Netherlands because he knew that uh, he wasn't going to face an attack on more than one front. So um, this is the reason why I say that they were both guilty of the same crime and they both had this idea of elites. In the case of um, the, the Nazis, it was this. Um, everybody who was a Jew, uh, and some of them might be shopkeepers, and in the case of Stalin, it was everyone who was a shopkeeper and some of them might be Jews. But it was the same idea, which is, uh, you know, my 10-year-old mother and my 10-year-old father were both part of this elite. Uh, and uh, this had to be removed in order to restore the, either the national spirit or the working class rule. Uh, and it brought disaster on everyone and really didn't bring good to anyone. There's a, Just on that, there's a, one of the most striking lines for me on exactly the same topic is when you, you, you're talking about the Nazi-Soviet pact, as I think I was, I think that's what I called it at A-level. It was the Nazi-Soviet pact. Anyway, you say this, beginning of a chapter called A Knife in the Back, it was just before Ludwig's 10th birthday that the German warplanes arrived. This is September the 1st, 1939. And it began, for that is how the communist terror started with Nazi bombing. And it was such a, a line, it was just one of those, you know, yeah, definitely underlining that, because it's very stark, the fact that you're, putting them both in one sentence. Absolutely. So I, I was, I've been careful in this book not to, it's not a political tract, 
just to give you a small example, my grandfather had lots of political arguments with people, including a massive argument with Hannah Arendt, whom people who are listening might remember, wrote uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And that was they had a big political argument. And I could have gone on and on about his political arguments or mine. But I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell the story. It's going to be propelled along by gripping human tails, not by a loose political argument. And um, I think readers will just realise the collaboration that existed and what it and what it enabled. And one of the ways that note know is that when ultimately Hitler invades the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa, this is an amazing uh, moment for my uh, father and for his uh, for my grandmother, my grandfather, because that means that uh, the Poles are no longer at war with the Soviets and they get an amnesty and are set free uh, but it's a disaster for all of my grandmother's siblings who are in Lviv um, because the Nazis then moved in and killed all of them so the the both the collaboration and the breakdown of that collaboration really propel this story. I want to talk about because she features in this book Anne Frank. Now, um, there was an, an, an there's an episode that you that happened recently that that you allude to, which is when uh, Justin Bieber went to Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam, and uh, there was a huge hoo ha because he left a message in the um, I think he wrote it in their in their guest book, saying that I think that Anne Frank would have been a believer, and everyone at the time was saying how unbelievably crass, how egocentric to put yourself at the centre of it. But he had um, an unlikely uh, defender in your mum, um, and you say that your mum felt that what made her so important was not really, as you say here, was not really her precocity or the way that her writing sparkled. It was her ordinariness. The, the diary is affecting because it portrays a young girl who was just like thousands of others. And that stopped me in my tracks because, of course, she's absolutely right. Is And even though at the time all of us well, were, were piling on to Justin because Bieber. Because she has a different perspective. She doesn't see Anne Frank as a famous person. So my, my uh, when I was a kid, I always used to think my mum was Dutch because she was brought up in Holland. My mother's born in June 1933. By this point, my grandfather has had an encounter with Goering, personal encounter with Goering, which meant he knew he had to get out of Germany. He goes to Holland. And the family is German. My grandfather, in fact, even when he dies, he wants German uh, eulogy. Um, but And they were just being brought up in Holland. And the same is true of the Frank family. And in that German-Jewish community, they often used Montessori schools, which were non-denominational. Um, they they were part of the uh, liberal synagogue, which had been created for kind of, I suppose, middle-class refugees of their sort. And um, they knew each other uh, through that. So particularly my, my, my aunt, Ruth, and Anne's sister, Margot, they were you know, study pals really in, in Hebrew classes and also in school together. And when later Anne and Margot are in Belson, Ruth and my mother saw them from one part of the camp to another and um, Ruth wrote it down in her little diary where she was keeping single line entries and um, in fact didn't realise she'd done it till years later when she translated it. So my mother's perspective on Anne and Ruth's perspective is she was just another kid in the class to Ruth a young kid to my mother a bit older uh, and as a result mum could see immediately that this that, 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 it, that indeed that's exactly what she would have been. She had all these pictures all over her wall of all these movie stars um, and it's true that her diary is completely dazzling and everyone can see the charisma in them and I think 
her friends who talk of her. So um, her friend um, Hannah Lee Goslar, who also my mother knew, uh, talks in her book of Anne Frank's total charisma. So she's not in that sense ordinary, but she was just another schoolgirl. So she would have had a school, she would have had and did have a schoolgirl's passions. There's um, uh, there's a number of references to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, one of the most uh, ancient of um, conspiracy theories. And I'm paraphrasing you here, Daniel. I think you've said on social media, on Twitter, when uh, in relation to some of the stuff that Roger Waters was coming up with, you said there's a chapter in my book which is sort of relevant to the kind of nonsense that he's talking about is is that the chapter that is is that yes. the section that you were thinking I, I you know i wish you would read it because the the protocols of the elders of zion is a document that says that there was a zionist congress uh and there and presented what it purported to be it was in fact a forgery but a, a piece of plagiarism what it purported to be the minutes of these zionist meetings and it was a zionist plan of how to manipulate the world right create wars introduce something ironically liberal policies um and you know seed ethnic conflict uh, all in order to um, for the jews to become richer and more powerful and th- th- it was explicitly that the Zionists did this and everyone else was their puppet. And this is just my grand... The reason why it's relevant to my book is my grandfather sues together with a group of other people in Switzerland and he spends several years in, in Bern suing the publishers of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in what's called the, the Bern trial. And they establish that the protocols are a forgery. Uh, interestingly, the, op, the, 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 the defenders use something called the Ford tactic. Henry Ford was a great... Uh, distributor of the protocols of the elders of Zion and never really uh, in my view um, went back on that Uh, still thought the Jews had created the second world war and he uh, had this tactic which was well I don't know whether they're plagiarized or not what I do know is look at the world it's pretty much turning out like the protocols said they would and what Roger Waters is saying, and he may not, I'm sure he does not appreciate it that he's doing this, but what he is saying is something that is not dissimilar to that. And certainly it's worthwhile him studying this period and wondering whether saying that Zionists uh, have a plan in which they are manipulating foreign governments and other kind of state actors is not very similar to the Ford tactic and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Whenever we're doing uh, a book for this um, podcast, Daniel, there will often come a point where both me and Simon will say to each other, have you got to X yet? Um, Because it's a standout part of the book. And with this one, the have you got to the Paraguayan passports yet is what's going to leap out. Now, I'm I'm aware that this is pretty far into the books and I know you know obviously we're hoping people are going to pick up this book and read it for themselves so I'm going to leave it as vague as that but I'd like you to talk as much as you can yeah. about the Paraguayan passport. Absolutely and by the way there's going to be a book um, in August by the historian Roger Morehouse on called The Forgers which is going to look at this Paraguayan passport from an even broader standpoint which looks as though it's going to be great as well. So my um, my mother and her sisters and my grandmother were sent to Belsen and not, as my great-aunt was, to Sobibor. Sobibor, like Auschwitz, had was an extermination camp. Unlike Auschwitz, nobody survives. So you go to Sobibor, your life expectancy is three hours, and that's exactly what happened to them. Uh, why 
was one group sent to one in one direction and another sent to Belsen. Well, Belsen was a camp created by Himmler as an exchange camp. You, uh, he thought he would use Jews. He realised they, they may not be winning the war in quite the way they think, so he's going to try to use Jews as hostages. He's going to take these Jews and swap them for arms, money, uh, tanks, uh, possibly, and he collect, he'll collect them together in one camp, and that camp is Belsen. And what happens, of course, nobody really uh, is swapped. Hardly anybody's swapped. Uh, we'll come to it. And everyone starves to death, particularly when they begin to move people from other camps into Belsen. But to go to Belsen, you needed to prove you had some exchange value. And that meant that you were you had citizenship of somewhere else. Well, my mother was a citizen of Paraguay. She was never been to Paraguay. We have no Paraguayan relatives. Um, the Paraguayans knew that these, this was false. Uh, the, the Allies knew this was false. Here's the, the puzzling thing. The Germans yes. knew it was false. But... All three of them thought it was useful because it created a fiction which allowed these Jews to be potentially uh, swappable. And my mother was indeed among almost nobody ends up getting swapped, but 136 people do. My mother, her sisters and my grandmother were. So, so the book is contains within it the story of how these passports and why they were created. They weren't false, but they did contain a lie and they were paid for essentially. But uh, why my um, mother had one well that's a slightly different question and uh you know i'll leave that to the reader to to, uh, to discover yeah did you despair at any time writing this it, i think it's very interesting and relevant that on the cover it says a family memoir of miraculous survival so that we go into this story knowing that that's that's kind of where we're ending up but before we get there it would be it's quite easy to despair as a reader and you must because this yeah. is your family you must have thought i'm not quite sure i want to carry on with this yeah so this is a book with, with a happy ending my there's a long tale in this of my parents living a very happy life and my father you know points out they wouldn't have met if it hadn't have been for the events in this and they loved each other deeply they were married for 54 years uh, they had three children they had a lovely life my mother was determined she would live life rather than simply survive what had happened to her my dad felt the same uh so um this was important to to include in the title and include in the feeling that you get in the book but there are of course moments in it where people don't survive i've just mentioned one um writing about so we always thought that my um great aunt trudy and my great uncle jan and my mother's cousin fritz had died in auschwitz uh, we hadn't really knew much about Sobibor, but then later in my mother's life, she'd found it was Sobibor they'd gone to. And in fact, had been one of the people who was there when John Demjanjuk, the Ohio car worker that later is accused of being Ivan the Terrible, when he is there, one of the people that supervises the deaths. And I had to study then what Sobibor was and what happened to them. And that was very difficult. And, um, and, um, there were moments when I was doing the audio book, which I struggled to get through, I admit. Um, but I do want people to know, ultimately, it's a story of personal triumph. They were resilient enough to, to, to live through this, and they um, then enjoyed you know, a very happy life. And it's, to some extent, a celebration of what we can easily overlook with all the troubles that we have politically in this country. Um, you you can easily overlook how amazing it is to live in a tranquil country that has the rule of law uh, and, you know, and, and a, a reasonable level of 
prosperity and protects individual rights, even as imperfectly as we do. Um, you, you talk about it being a story of personal triumph. And, and as you say, there is, I mean, there are dark, dark parts of this book. But there are, as you say, there are there are lighter edges as well. And there is something that absolutely does not feel like that it that it belongs in this book at all and that is the joy and glee club and i want you to talk about that because it feels completely out of place with me you would never put something called the joy and glee club in this book normally but but it's there all yeah we had some quite difficult quite a lot of difficulty translating it from the dutch but we think that's the closest to it my my um you know everyone in in holland plays in the street i knew that and one of the things i wanted to do was to give a feeling of what they did in their street life uh, you know, in, in outside in the bikes and the playing. I thought it would be interesting. Anyway, while I was thinking about I came across in the papers, extraordinarily enough, my aunt's papers, this history of this this sort of club membership list and club members' cards and newsletters of this little club that they created called the Joy and Glee Club. And by the way, I, I only have this because... You know, one of the things that I tell everyone if they if they want to write a family memoir, it's a good thing to be the grandson of one of the great archivists of the 20th century. Because <laughs> um, so my Alfred had obviously had this in his archive. But the this, these papers um, show uh, I realised I could trace what happened to all of the people. I, in fact, managed only 19 out of 20 of them who belonged to, who were part of this Joy and Glee Club. And partly because of its name, you know, the contrast between what then they did you know, and they're playing games and doing competitions and winning a marbles in a, you know, a puzzle competition and drawing pictures for each other and everything. And of course, the contrast between that and then what happens to many of the children is is a quite a stark one. I think it tells the story of the Holocaust in a pretty powerful way. Um, so that's why, you know, I set aside that, that chapter for uh, recall of that club. There are a number of occasions, I think, and we've mentioned a couple of them, where the, the reader sort of maybe familiar with the general contours of the conversation that you're uh, that you're engaged with will realise what its relevance is to uh, 2023. Uh, the Russian story is is one of them, and the lack of Russian self examination, the fact that they because they they were on the winning side, that being one of them which we've which we've touched on. Um, there's another section which I uh, marked and have the great joy of now reading to the person who wrote it <laughs> but you say fascists and communists both believed that the will of the people was being thwarted by elites and that the individuals who made up the elites needed to be eliminated by force and your use of that language just echoes an awful lot of the conversation particularly on social media but when people often very privileged people who are members of the elite talk about the blob and so on. I find it enormously infuriating. But that is one of the moments where I think the reader will go, OK, I understand the relevance of this, really. So conspiracy theories of any kind are one of the core reasons for anti-Semitism. And I think there's just been a study, really, which shows that it's less whether you're on the right and whether or you're on the left, but your susceptibility to conspiracy theories, which suggests whether you're susceptible to being anti-Semitic as well. And, it, and interestingly, my grandfather, in who made quite a number of speeches and wrote books about the rise of fascism much earlier than most people. So his first warning comes in 1919. Uh, he does another big lecture, which has been published in 1924. Uh, he is, uh, and one of the central points of that is the danger of conspiracy theories. And one of the, and a the conspiracy theory is an elite, a blob, uh, is 
running everything uh, and we the people which is always regarded as a unified group which all has the same interests quite obviously a variance with our actual experience um, the people are being thwarted by this elite and this is a form of conspiracy theory and maybe the elite is doing something out outrageous like killing john f kennedy or faking the moon landings um or um inventing covid and putting people and locking people down in order to uh to support uh the world economic forum's agenda for the world or whatever it happens to be or they'll be doing something quite banal which is um you know thwarting the small boats policy of the conservative party and and i i rebel against those that thinking because i think it uh, doesn't accord with reality as I experience it. It has a very dangerous view of people because people are very varied. Now you can see from this book, for example, um, how upper middle class my family was. Right? Um, so, uh, and they were very different from different, you know, from different places, but they had a lot of correspondence, uh, you know, in terms of their ethnic outlook. Um, they're just one kind of victim of these events. There were lots of different kinds of victims and their interests and perspective were not different. My mother always used to say, you know, survive, everyone thinks uh, survivors are one type of person, but actually sometimes you don't like somebody else who's a survivor, just like you don't like somebody else who isn't one. Uh, and um, I think that is um, why I rebel against this language about elites and um, about... Uh, blobs. I think it's a conspiracy theory, and conspiracy theories are very dangerous. There are two reasons, Daniel, why I really connected with this book. The first is is obvious, and that's the it's the story. It's the story of what happened to your to your mother and father. But the other is your writing, which is is sensational, and your turn of phrase. And I'm going to talk to you about. It's actually nothing to do with the book, but I um, I listened to the Times Radio podcast, and you um, sort of appear on that podcast once a week. And you said you came up with a phrase that um, it felt to me at the time that you you sort of threw it away but it felt like it was you threw it away because it was something that you said all the time or that you just threw it away because you didn't think it was worth anything but it has stuck with me for so long since then you talked about you want to make it cheap for people to cross the river in other words when somebody who you disagree with suddenly decides to change their opinion you want to make it cheap for them to do that. In other words, so you don't then say, ah, but you used to think this. Just, to, I, I just want you to talk, a, just to expand on that a little more because, as I say, it's a phrase that has stuck with me for so long. Well, first of, all, first of all, thank you so much for saying those things. I've had a couple of people say that. People have been very nice about the book. And honestly, I, I, I keep saying I just wrote it down, really, and that's just how I write or think I don't. And if, if, I, if it appeals to other people, I'm really, really happy about it. But it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> but nice. But gratifying, but embarrassing. Um, so, yeah, that phrase... Actually, I did probably, I think I did just think about it at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, we have a lot of, so an awful lot of reasoning, including my own, is motivated um, to try to support the things that you already think of. It's very difficult to change your mind. In politics, we have a lot of conversations about U-turns. And if the U-turn is people moving from something impractical or not very nice to something that works or is good i'm all for it you know i if if it was if the conservative party decided now that it didn't want to pursue the rwanda policy i wouldn't 
um, want to concentrate on the fact that they've humiliated themselves by having it. Uh, I would be pleased because that's what the direction of policy I want. Um, and, you know, the same goes with the fact that Keir Starmer has ditched most of his leadership uh, pledges. Well, mostly I think he's ditched things he shouldn't have committed himself for in favour of things that he should. Obviously, other people will feel differently and they should criticise the new view, but not really people for shifting their point of view. That is a good thing if people are taking the facts, reanalyzing them and being willing to move. Uh, and um, that's all I was trying to say by that. So I don't want to increase the burden and increase the cost as a, as a commentator, concentrate, you know, making it more difficult for Keir Starmer to move away from something I disapprove of by saying, well, if you do that, I'm going to criticise you for having humiliated yourself. Um, can I ask you about, therefore about reason and rationality? Because... Um... I read your stuff every week, and I, I read your uh, your last book. If I interviewed you for it, um, which was a collection of your articles, but I wonder. And, and you mentioned your father was a professor professor of measurement, so there's a, there's a, a strong academic vein through this book of rationality. But I wonder if writing this book sort of had undermined your belief in rationality at all, because it didn't really do any good. Well, that's very interesting. So my, this book begins with the phrase, liberty, um, the truth lies at the feet of liberty. And this was um, a description of a real thing, which is that my aunt and my mothers have got Alfred's First World War medals with them because they thought it would help in the concentration camps. And as they arrive at the Statue of Liberty, um, being about to go to Ellis Island, they worry correctly, actually, that they might be considered spies. So they throw the medals off the boat and the this these medals representing the truth about my grandfather lie at the feet of liberty that's why i wrote it but the reason why i wrote that as the first line is that truth is a very strong strand of this of his thinking he felt that truth uh, would be liberating that if you told the truth about the nazis uh, the truth would be very powerful he goes around with a little suitcase he's got in it Hitler's uh, writings, his books, the protocols of the elders of Zion. He goes to all these businesses. Sometimes he's told, you know, Hitler was in your seat yesterday and he opens the suitcase and he tells them, look, this is what the danger that you face. And some of them cannot see. He's told once by somebody uh, in the chancellery, actually, in the Rice Chancellery, by one of von Papen's aides, um, Hitler is a, a a decent and idealistic person if a little excitable that was the phrase that was used so he, he this truth you're correct it does not shift the dial i think alfred's response for this would be twofold first of all he did find it very painful but that didn't work and it's he, he had twice had nervous breakdowns i think the failure of this doctrine among other failures of doctrine contributed to that and he would definitely have felt uh, he would definitely have accepted that. But he would still have said, look, it's valuable in itself. It's all that you can do. You've got to point it out and keep it. And then he would point out that after the Second World War, in the Nuremberg trials to which he contributed, the Eichmann trials to which he contributed, and all the history, like the history of the fight, Gerald Reichlinger's book on the final solution, which drew on my grandfather's documents very heavily, Alan Bullock's work as well. Those things really did make a difference to the development of post-war liberal democracy and the rule of law and supporting people like Conrad Adenauer. So he he would have um, he would have argued, and I think correctly, it's a lot of mixed picture. In the end, uh, force of arms uh, was necessary as well as uh, um, 
belief in the truth, but belief in the truth remains necessary. And certainly it is the attempt to... Obviously, everybody thinks their own political views are the truth or they're uh, rational and minor influenced by all the same mistakes, cognitive errors of everyone else's. Um, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a perfectly good reason why I'm economically and socially liberal, um, which you can explain completely in evol using evolutionary psychology alone without ever hearing me speak about anything. So I accept that. Um, but nevertheless, to strive at least to have rational argument and to strive at least to discover what the truth is and to express it, that's certainly an inherited trait. My father... Uh, and my mother and my my mother's father that was all they were all interested in those in that and it's certainly a theme although very important to say it is a theme told through their personal stories rather than expounded upon it's not a book about truth or a book about rationality um Matt, at the beginning of our conversation, mentioned the, the quote from Robert Harris on the front. And in the acknowledgements in the book, you also um, thank Robert Harris, uh, who I think you met over many lunches. Yeah. And he explained or helped you organise. So I just want to end up with a kind of a um, this is how I wrote the book kind of conversation, but inspired by what Rob. What did he tell you about well, arranging your document? Okay, so there's before I say that, he also has this, gave me this amazing thing from Tom Stoppard, which was just because something is true doesn't mean it's interesting. <laughs> so I, for example, spent two months working on the history of Levouf, and I, there's about two and a half paragraphs because people weren't reading a history book about Levouf, but I needed to understand it myself. So you've got to be very careful with that. That was very important. Now, he gave me a, a very simple piece of advice, but it was incredibly valuable about... So keep your notes in chronological order. Put everything. It's a history book, and so write them in the hist in the you know in the order in which they happen, uh, and then you'll be able to find everything. So I actually kept two. One was a mum chronology, and the other was a dad chronology. And I just uh, everybody. It's amazing how often you, for example, want everybody's birth dates, right? But also, if you know, my mother had a school report, I'd put it in with the date when it was. And you find that if you organise it that way, because the book's chronological, you can always find things later. It's really, really easy. I mean, obviously, control F is also pretty useful. In the document. <laughs> I'm not saying it isn't, but the, the, the order is really, really valuable. Um, the other thing that I found incredibly valuable, somebody told me, um, pointed out to me that you could using, you can dictate to the computer and the thing where that was useful is you've got this big book um you know for example uh, there's a book on called jews for sale um was all about hostage schemes and you might want a whole chunk of information from that but you don't want to sit there having to type it all out but you want to make sure you've got it all correctly so that later you can put the references in correctly and i found that if i, I could just read from the one book onto the computer, that was incredibly valuable. And one last thing that I think is useful to anybody listening to this who's imagining that they might one day want to write their own family history for themselves or for publication. Uh, everything that happened to your family happened to someone else as well. This is really useful. So just to give you an example, my mother and my aunt Ruth, both of whom are no longer alive, uh, had accounts of which trains they took, what type of train they took. So one of them, they, they all take trains from Amsterdam to Vesterbork concentration camp, from Vesterbork to Belsen, and eventually from Belsen to Switzerland. Which of those was a cattle truck? My mother and my aunt had different 
recollections in their different interviews as to which was which. Well, what I realised, because I was thinking, how am I going to solve this problem? You know, they're no longer alive. And then I thought, well, if they were on this train, someone else was on it. So I found out, I went through until I found someone else who had a memoir, which was on the same date. And they told me which train, you know, it turned out my mum was right, not my mum. She was six years younger, so quite something. But um, it was it was important. So if you've got a story and you've got a little fragment, you know that, you know, your your mum or dad was in Liverpool working uh, in the docks between 1933 and 1935. Well, they won't be the only person. And you can find out an awful lot about that, the docs, from reading other people's memoirs. And having brought your family to life in this book, Daniel, it feels as though there's there's life in this story still. I mean, have it, has anyone said to you, could we put this into a TV series? Could we put not, this on a big screen? Not yet. So it's Would being, like it's being uh, yeah, I, I'd love it um, because I, I'd, I love telling this story. It's incredibly powerful. At the moment, I... So I love books, and I've written the sort of book I want to read. And I've I've tried, for example, one of the things that drives me nuts in books like this is when you have to keep on going back to the front to work out who's who. <laughs> so I, as you probably have told from the book, I really pared down the characters just, you know, because sometimes what you do in books is you throw in loads of people because you feel they want to be mentioned. Fortunately, at this late date, you don't have to do that. But I really cut it down so that you're just focusing on a few people and it's easier to remember who they are so it's i love books and so for me this is definitely the prime you know and you can see from my grandfather you know his house was just flooded with books and so was my dad and my brother i mean we're all like that so um so for me the book and i've always wanted to do a book on this so it's very satisfying but yeah sure it would be lovely to see it done and i've had one or two people who've who've said that to me, nothing serious yet. And I think I'm waiting to, after the book is released in the United States under a different title, it's called Two Roads Home there. Uh, then after that, I think I'll sort of look more seriously at that. Um, we, we give it a, a huge endorsement, big thumbs up from both Matt and me. It's certainly one of the books of the year. And congratulations, Dan, because it is in the best-selling uh, chart still uh, as we speak Daniel Finkelstein's book is Hitler Stalin Mum and Dad there'll be more with Daniel uh, with our Q&A which will be with you in a few days time but Daniel thank you very much indeed thank you